0: Thank you, Michael Moore. You're the reason I got started in podcasting. You suggested the an anchor, and how easy it was. It takes this five minutes. Michael and you were right. Yeah, Thanks.
1: You're listening to Rumble with Michael Moore. This is my podcast. Rumble. Welcome, everyone. Lately, I've been delivering podcasts to Rumble you with lots of good news, surprising news, hopeful news. And it's been feeling good. Even in the last week, we had the good news from the Georgia runoff and the fact that
0: Uh, the Trump organization
1: was convicted on all 17 counts of tax Uh, fraud uh, and other various criminal activities by Trump's business. One day ago. But the one, th- there we
2: go. Let's have Let Let yourself a merry day. You kind of Let your heart be light. Next year, all our troubles will be out of sight.
1: That is one of the best Christmas songs ever, uh-huh. right? Anybody agree with me on this? Nope. Judy Garland, 1944, from the movie yeah. Meet Me in yeah. St. Louis. Such a beautiful, soulful, mournful, happy song, all that together. Probably just the way it was, 1940s, the world at war, having come out of a Great Depression, two big knocks <laughs> to the human race in the 1930s and 40s. Wow. This is Michael Moore, of course. uh, Hi, Mike. You're listening to my podcast, Rumble with Michael Moore. (laughs) I always say my name twice. I don't know how to get around that. I introduce myself, and then I say the title of the uh, podcast. Michael Moore. Michael Moore. Mike Moore. The name's so nice, he says it twice. (laughs) Yeah, great, great. great oh man oh, uh, just um, i just I just was kind of um thinking about my parents in that time growing up as they did in the thirties and forties and I, you know I think of my dad i mean he's just being in the Marines in the South Pacific through all those awful battles in world war two and then and my mom uh, being the youngest child uh in a depression and my parents had um they were they were so good-natured considering you when you think about what was that like to to live through that depression and then through that war and my dad in having actually literally gotten to get out of it alive and then in the next decade they're having us kids and you'd never know they'd gone through anything and it's not that they didn't talk about it actually they did talk about it and they talked a lot about it frankly i think as kids we were very well schooled and the what, what of how the world works and how it runs, and and the difficult, difficult times that a lot of people have to go through. But thinking about you know this, just this last week leading up here till Christmas Day, and, and my dad, <laughs> the days leading up to Christmas, we'd be sitting you know in the living room after dinner, and you know I don't know we were watching Looney Tunes. Looney Tunes had a primetime show on ABC. <laughs> Bugs bunny. And all of a sudden, you know, we'd hear ho 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 and some jingling of bells and banging on the back porch screen door. And which was on like you had to go through the kitchen to go out the you know the back door. And and we would know who that was. It was Santa see we were told by our parents that santa would come in the week before christmas on one of those nights to get our list of what we want what we wanted for christmas so when we hear this the three of us i have two younger sisters we would get up off the living room floor wherever we were and run to the kitchen because we wanted to see santa but my mom would like block the door that would go through the kitchen so that we couldn't see to the back door we're not allowed to see Santa. If we saw him, we'd be crossed off the list or something, so So we'd stand there at the kitchen door from from where the living room was, and Santa would go, Merry Christmas, more children. <laughs> what would you like me to bring you for Christmas? I'm not doing a very good Santa thing. <laughs> um so Santa would go, What do you what would you like for Christmas? And we were all like screaming and I'd shout out something, I want a machine gun <laughs> and a grenade. <laughs> I know, uh, you know, we were World War II children. <laughs> we used to play war out in the neighborhood, like every day. Somebody would have to be the, the Germans and then the other half of us would be the Americans. And I have to say my favorite thing when we played war as kids was Somebody would throw a grenade toward us. I would jump, just leap through the air and and fall on the grenade to save everybody, everybody else <laughs> and pretend that I was blown to bits. I know why am I laughing about this? This is awful if children are listening to this this was something we did a long time ago when we were not as smart as you children are um today, so anyways, my sisters you know would want an easy bake oven or some doll. they liked art stuff, you know they would love that or things that they would play with the other girls. You know, I, I when I think about this, the other good little girls in the neighborhood, I literally paid no attention <laughs> to, to the little, whoever my sisters were playing with, I never actually saw them, what they did when they went to each other's house to play. Cause I was always out, you know, there was a field on the side of our neighborhood. We lived on a dirt street. And it dead-ended in a field. And so we take one of the lawnmowers out there and we'd, we'd mow a baseball field out of it. we create like a diamond. And all summer long, we're out there playing baseball every day, all day. But I digress. Anyway, so Santa is out there getting our list. We're excited. We're trying to break through my mom so we could get out there to see Santa. But then realizing if we got too far and through the kitchen, we if we saw him, then we might not get our presents. So Santa then said a few more words be good to your parents. Always obey. And um, and then we'd hear the last, ho, ho, ho. And we'd hear the jingle go away from the house. And we just assumed that he was going next door to the Thomases. I guess I can still see the... The looks on my sister's faces and me just beaming with, I just knew whatever I asked for, I was had a good chance of getting. Now, of course, we didn't get everything back in those days, you know. Things were much more limited than, you know, they are now. But um, I do have such a joyful memory of this. And just kind of marveling at my dad. My dad was not like a showman or a, a person who would, like, play a character or whatever. But he really put us all into this. And we believed and we believed and we believed. <laughs> And then, and then, you know, of course, I grew up, I became an adult. And as an adult, when I had a daughter, a little girl, we would often do Christmas over at the in-laws. Uh, they had a, a basement, and uh, so we'd all be down in the basement. I suggested on um, one of those Christmases, because we had a lot of cousins, a lot of little kids. You know, uh, my dad used to do this, and I could, I could be like up in the garage, just outside the door that goes down to the basement, and i could play santa and do what my dad does and, and did and, and so everybody loved this idea and then so so i got some jingle bell concoction or whatever and so i'd sneak out i'd sneak upstairs and go out in the garage where we'd hidden a whole bunch of presents in a big like santa sack so i wasn't there like to ask their take their christmas list because i was there to deliver the presents so i'd have a would have a big sack out in the garage and I'd go up there all of a sudden I'd be banging on the door from the garage and to the stairs I'd go down the bed. Ho 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 Merry Christmas. It's Santa <laughs> Of course the kids go crazy and the the adults block the bottom of the stairs so the kids can't get up to see the obviously, you know, it's me. And uh I brought your presents. I know you've got some there from your parents and but I these are presents from the North Pole. And so <laughs> The kids were going crazy. Now, you know, when I was a kid, it was just myself and my two sisters. But when you have all the combined families together, there were at least two dozen of these little tikes running around, it seemed, at least. And so anyway, so all of a sudden, the five, six, seven-year-old boys charged the adults that were at the bottom of the stairs to prevent them from going up the stairs, and they got through and they are climbing the stairs and I can, I can hear this. I don't need to see it. These things are coming at me and I'm like, Oh, shit, they're going to see that. It's me. And, and, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't have a Santa costume on. I just have the bag of and So I just dropped the bag right there. Here's your presents. Merry Christmas. And I, I tore out of the garage. <laughs> okay. You know, in your head, you're thinking I'm an adult You know, even though I'm not a track star, I can outrun a five-year-old. Think again. All right. These kids, by the time they got up to the top of the stairs, I was out of the garage. But I turned around and I could see that they were making their way through the garage. They are are going to chase me down. Now, it's very dark out. It's winter. There's snow. You know, I always had a winter coat on. You know, maybe they couldn't tell, but I didn't have a red suit or a white beard. But they were convinced I was Santa. And man, did I, I, I ran probably the fastest I'd ever run in my life. And I got to the mm-hmm. one of the neighbors and I ducked behind uh, some big evergreens. And the kids lost me and they, they never caught up to me. But uh, I'm telling you, it's a, not a good feeling when you are actually Santa, carrying gifts, and now you're, you're shivering in fear <laughs> with a bunch of five and six-year-olds on your tail to be scared like this. <laughs> what a, you know, my, my dad never had this problem. What am I trying to do here? But that was the first time we did it. The, in years after that, I got it down a little better. I was never captured or caught or um, my identity revealed, but, um, but it was fun. And it was a nice uh, kind of homage, I guess, to my own dad. When we
2: were little tykes. Once again as in olden days, happy golden days of your faithful friends who were dear to us will be near.
1: Let me just take a moment to thank one of the two underwriters for today's episode. Much appreciation here on, on Christmas to support Rumble here with me. First up, a huge thank you to Trade Coffee. If you love drinking coffee or have a coffee lover in your life that you're still shopping for, Well, let me tell you, you have to check out Trade Coffee. Trade Coffee is a coffee subscription service, and it makes it super easy to get better coffee. It's delivered fresh from the finest local roasters around the country, direct to your doorstep. The roast selection to choose from on Trade is incredible. And regardless of whether you already know what you like or you're new to this idea of specialty coffee, Trade makes it easy and convenient to discover new coffees. This month in our Rumble office, we of course had to go with a holiday roast. We chose a blend from Mother Tongue Coffee in Oakland, California called Merry Everything and a Happy Always. I love that made with baking spices that have notes of apple and uh, toasted nuts in them. It makes the whole office smell like the holidays. So whether you want to treat yourself or whether you're just looking for a plain old gift any time of the year, right now, Trade is offering Rumble listeners a total of $30 off a subscription and access for a limited time to these holiday coffee specials. That's drinktrade.com, drinktrade.com slash rumble. For $30 off, com slash rumble. So this is my unofficial Christmas podcast message to you. I want to tell you about tomorrow, about something I'm going to do for you, with you on Christmas Day. And then I have a couple little things to say, but I'm not going to keep you long here. It's Christmas Eve. Here on Christmas morning, I'm going to start a new tsunami series, the like we did with the tsunami series, Mike's midterm tsunami of truth. For 44 days leading up to the election, I sent you a a written column essay each day telling you why we were not going to let the Republicans take over. They were telling us they were going to win 60 seats in the House, five seats in the Senate, governorships. Essentially, the Democratic Party was going to collapse under this red wave. And not only were the Republicans saying it, Democrats were saying it, people who didn't want it to happen but believed it, pundits, liberal pundits, liberal news commentators, everybody got on board, as you know, and I don't need to repeat this again, that you and I and a few others didn't believe that and believed that they could be stopped, that they weren't the big bad boogeymen that were going to bring Trump back and ruin the country again. So. For 44 days, I I sent you those every day. Thank you for opening them. Thank you for reading and responding. And thank you for voting and getting five people to take to the polls with those who did that. Any work you did, thank you for all of that. But what I thought I would do, if you'll accept this as a Christmas gift for me, is to start a new series, not as long, just a sort of a 12 days of Christmas series that will begin here on Christmas Day. One of the things I heard a lot from people during this election year is, I live in a red area. I live in a red state. I live in a red county. What's the point? What can I do? You know, there's a sense of a real despair because you're constantly surrounded by this madness of election deniers and people that are lovers of Trump and all of this. And, and how can you get anything done? How can you contribute to the greater good when you live in this red town? Well, I have put together 12 episodes They're only going to be about 12 minutes each, and each day I'm going to drop one. It's called Blue Dots in a Red Sea. How to not only survive but thrive if you're a blue voter, if you're a Democrat, if you're a liberal, you're a progressive, in a red town, in a red county, in a red state. And not only that, how to win elections. And I'm going to show you what people did just a month ago, people who live in red cities, red towns, red states and how they got elected as Democrats. If you felt even the slightest bit inspired by the tsunami of truths that I sent you during the election season here this fall, I promise you, if you if you will just listen, and these are short podcasts each day, 12 minutes, that's it. If you will listen to my battle plan as I lay it out, my strategy, not only for those of you who live in red areas, how you can win, how you can flip, a town, a township, a school board, that you could actually flip your state. And you don't need to go any further than the state of Georgia to know what I'm talking about. We have seen this happen. And so starting here tomorrow or today, if it's you're listening to this on Christmas Day, I want you just to take 12 minutes a day for the next 12 days. It's all that's going to last. And, and listen to my blue dots in a red sea. And how do you turn red into blue? Because you know you can't, these are two primary colors. I'm gonna show you how to do it. I want you to listen now. Don't say to yourself, oh, I live in Massachusetts or I live in California, I don't know. If you live in California, you have many red areas in California. If you live in Michigan, there are still red areas, you you know. But the other piece of this is, is that you have relatives and you have friends. And they live in red states and they live in red areas. And they're feeling that despair. And I want you to share this little tsunami of podcasts over these next 12 days with them. Send it to them. Say, here, give this a listen. So Michael Moore's got an idea for what you can do to help flip things in your area or to put up a blue wall or get a ballot proposal passed. Whatever it is, there are things that can be happening in red states, in red towns. And I want to show you how to do it what you can do or what your relatives who live in idaho or south carolina or arkansas what they can do or oh my god if you have family in florida first of all my sympathies uh but even they even in an insane state like florida they have a way out and definitely in texas there's a way to keep doing some good stuff that we started here this fall with this election so that's what's going to happen. 12 days in a row, each day, a 12-minute podcast for the 12 days of Christmas from now until January 6. And I want you to please tune in, please share them. 2023 and 2024 can be two of our best years, two of our best years for this country that are ahead of us. So um, that's Blue Dots in a Red Sea, a 12-episode podcast, 12 minutes long. That's all the length of it is for the next 12 days right here rumble with michael moore and it'll also be sent to you on my sub stack so please give a listen i think you'll enjoy it and appreciate it and maybe we can all learn something from each other okay so before we um go on to my last thing here let me just take another second here to thank my other underwriter for today's christmas eve episode this episode is brought to you by the good people at BetterHelp. help when life gets stressful or overwhelming, it's helpful to talk to someone about it. Yet so often, getting mental health help gets put on the back burner, especially in this country with our for-profit health care system. It can be expensive and difficult to make time for or even hard to find the right therapist. That's where BetterHelp comes in. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out the brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. Could be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com Rumble. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Rumble. Thank you, BetterHelp, for supporting this podcast and supporting my voice. So, okay, so just two last things here before we go and get back to enjoying Christmas with the family. The first thing is, there's someone sitting in prison who's been in prison now for nearly 50 years, a Native American. I've talked to you about him before. I've had people on the podcast here to talk about it. He's still in prison after all these years for a crime that was never proven on uh, the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation near the site of the Wounded Knee Massacre from back in the late 1800s. His name is Leonard Peltier, and uh, he's now not well. He's in prison still. They say that he participated in a shootout where the FBI had come onto the reservation to try and put down whatever liberation activities the Native peoples were participating in there. He has proclaimed his innocence uh, since that day, but he was arrested, tried, convicted, and um, there's no real evidence. I mean, this case is, is so bad, listen to this, Back at the uh, beginning of 2017, at the end of President Obama's term, uh, one of the lead prosecutors who prosecuted Peltier and put him away just couldn't remain silent anymore and wrote a letter to President Obama asking that Peltier be released from prison. And I'm just going to quote from the letter. He wrote, This is the prosecutor now. The final theory on which Mr. Peltier's conviction now rests is that he was guilty of murder simply because he was present on the reservation that day. However, Mr. Paltier has been labeled and more importantly was sentenced as a cold-blooded murderer based on a theory we were forced to drop on appeal. He has served almost 50 years on the basis of minimal evidence, a result I strongly doubt would be upheld in any court today. I urge you, To chart a different path in the history of the government's relationship with its Native people through a show of mercy, rather than continued indifference, I urge you to take a step towards healing a wound that I had a part in making. I urge you to commute Leonard Peltier's sentence and grant him executive clemency. Wow. That never happened. And there are many other lawyers, prosecutors, judges, good people who have advocated for the release of this individual who I would say had to spend the last 50 years of his life behind bars for the crime of being a Native American. So here's what we can do. We don't have to get involved in the the debate of this or whatever. 50 years is a very long prison sentence. So no matter what you believe about the case, it's time that he was released. And so I'm asking you to ask President Biden to hear it during the end of the year, where he often, the president often issues uh, pardons, to pardon Leonard Peltier and release him from prison. There's any number of ways that Biden can do this. He can just end the prison sentence. If he doesn't want to pardon him. He can just end the prison sentence right now. But this man should be released. And it's a good thing to do, and it's a good thing to honor the people of this country who were here first and who were slaughtered in a genocide by our ancestors. Our, you know, I'm talking about white people and white Europeans. If you came from China, you did not participate in this. And if you were an enslaved human being, kidnapped and brought here in chains, you didn't do this. And your ancestors didn't do it. But the Europeans did do it. And it's just one more small gesture, maybe, perhaps, on our part, those of us, the descendants of those Europeans, to make right. And to be forgiven, to release this individual, a leader, a leader of many, many people who are First Peoples, Native Americans, release him from prison. And I ask you this, President Biden, there's any chance you happen to be listening, or if anybody's playing this for you, I ask you to do this out of the generosity of your heart, out of the sense of forgiveness. I would ask you, what would Jesus do? I think you know the answer to that. And I think this would make a lot of people, this would be a beautiful way to end this year, where we did a number of good things. And this could be... the, the. One of the last things that we do to end 2022 by freeing Leonard Peltier. So I'd like to ask you to write to President Biden. I have a contact, and you just click on it here on my podcast page, or you can just go to whitehouse.gov. They'll have a way for you to send a message to the president. And I would love it if you would do that. Just two sentences, three sentences. Free Leonard Peltier. The last name is spelled P-E-L-T-I-E-R, Leonard Peltier, and who knows? Maybe we'll succeed. And finally, I just I want to say to all of you, it's a crazy world we live in. I know, it's a crazy, crazy world. Sometimes it's crazy good. Sometimes there's a lot of good that happens, and sometimes, whew, our heads are spinning. You know, we have so much more work to do to better things, better ourselves, make life better for our kids, grandkids, our elderly parents, so many things on that list. And I think we can do, I think we could actually make a better world. And I think you know, what I know is that that better world starts with each of us, of how we treat ourselves, of how we treat each other, how we are to sometimes some of the worst people that we have to deal with in our neighborhood in our schools and at work. It's really hard to turn the other cheek. It's really hard to love your enemy, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's such a great line. The implication is that you can't really love your neighbor when you say, I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. Well, you better start by loving yourself first then. Because if you hate yourself, that ain't going to be much good love going to your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do some good for yourself this year. Be kind to yourself. Don't beat yourself up. It's not worth it. Life is good. Life can be better. And the love that we share with each other, whether it's our neighbors, or our classmates, or our coworkers, or family members, strangers on the other side of the planet, the more love, the better. I don't have to convince you of that. I know that. But to love your enemy, who, that's a hard one, isn't it? I try to ask myself if I can do it, and don't usually succeed, but I think once or twice a year, somewhere, I rise to the occasion inside myself. And I think, you know what? Yes, they treated you badly. They hurt you. But I don't really feel better by hurting them back or treating them poorly. You never feel good doing that, do you? You think you're going to feel better? I'll get them. And then it's like, oh, that felt like yuck. And then you've just debased yourself. You've lowered yourself. And if whatever you think about them in terms of how they behave, by behaving like them, by being like them, is that progress? Uh, No. Progress is being able to still love them, even if they are shitty. Because really maybe the only chance of them being better is whatever love you can spare to have that rub off on them so that they may think, wow, I thought he hated me. I mean, I I actually did do something kind of rotten toward him. Again, I'm not always good at this. I'm just like you. I'm not going to discuss who my enemies are. <laughs> with you and when i say the word enemy it's just funny when i even say that word like i don't really want to think of anybody as my enemy it's not how i look at the world but i found myself a week or two ago in a, a moment where i had to make a decision where i could help somebody who was a friend of mine for a really long time and then wasn't I'm not going to get into the why of it but it, you know it's one of those sad things that happen between friends in the end nobody's right nobody's wrong and it's just stupid that you lose friendships just so stupid and so this moment came where i could help this former friend who was not nice to me in the end of the friendship and I waited to the last minute, frankly, to whether or not, uh, can I do this? Should I do this? I can't do this. It's not right. It's not right. right. Yes, it is right. People were friends of yours. You shared a lot with them, and you were in the trenches together, and that will never be forgotten. You grew together, and it just, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. And I said that to myself. And I said, you're going to do something good right now. And I did. And it wasn't about money. It wasn't about anything. And this former friend will never know. But I did the right thing. And it felt good. Let me tell you, friends. It felt good. It didn't feel like, why did you do that? After you were treated that way. No. That's exactly when you have to do it. That's the only way to build the love amongst us. I know probably some of this just sounds like a bunch of hooey and sentimental crap. I don't live my life that way, though. And you know me well enough by now to know that. So I encourage you to take those steps when you can to heal. To heal with each other. Or to move on. And don't be stuck in the, in the morass of bitterness and hate and, and, and feeling hurt. And yes, you were the victim. But now is now. We have to build this better world. We're never going to make it, my friends. You know this. And it has to start in the smallest ways. It has to start with ourselves. And it has to start with each other and the people we know, live with, be with so that's my other my other ask here on Christmas that we join together with and toward each other to build that world and I know we can do it. I absolutely know we can do it and I believe we can get Leonard Peltier out of prison, please President Biden, please. That's it my friends um, I hope. You've had a good Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. And if you don't celebrate Christmas, it's now a secular holiday. I don't know if you know that or not. You don't have to believe in the baby Jesus or anything else. You don't even have to believe in Santa. You don't even have to believe in the Christmas tree. And all of us, we should be, you know, when Ramadan comes around, think about fasting for a day. Just join in. You know, Kwanzaa, there's a lot you can do with Kwanzaa coming up here this week. Our Jewish brothers and sisters, oh my God. Here's a year where we can do some good. This is who we are. Thanks to my producer and my editor, Angela Vargos. Incredible person to work with. Merry Christmas to you, Angela, and your family. I can't wait to hear tomorrow's first episode of my new tsunami series blue dots in a red sea pass it around pass the ham pass the turkey pass the doobie whatever, whatever you got in your hand pass it enjoy this moment and thanks for being on this planet with me be well Merry Christmas much love this is Michael Moore and this is Rumble
2: In a life of hardship and of earthly toil, there's a need for anything that frees us. So I bid you pleasure, and I bid you cheer, from a heathen and a pagan, on the side of the rebel Jesus.
0: Here in the next. Yeah. The man who knew too much for a documentary. Two stories. Okay. That was a little, kind of lame. you guys still there? I'm going to give it a, maybe a seven. Uh, yeah. Still so there on uh, one podcast. I run a checker garden, so that's what's going on. Anyway, I'm kind of backlogged because I'm busy organizing. Thanks for 30K listens on one podcast. I got 30K listens. Thanks for that. I appreciate each and every one of you, 30,000 separate. People, and if you do enjoy this, um, please share, because I'm in a captive portal by the fucking VHS I have it on word of an expert. Remember those? Nobody seems to use experts anymore. Pre-colonialism, the complete- Hey, shut the flock up. Noisy. History of Indigenous America Before Colonialism, 1491. Medieval History Documentaries, One Day ago Posted, Chronicle... Hey guys, so my rich stepmom is
3: losing 13 pounds per week using this new ice hack. It's so unfair.
4: This channel is part of the History Hit Network. We are the first peoples of the Americas. We have been here from the beginning. Our ancestors navigated by the wind and stars, crossing vast oceans and mountain ranges, searching for new lands. Over thousands of years, our ancestors became astronomers and architects, philosophers and scientists. Artists and inventors. We created distinct societies and built the vast trade systems that covered two continents. In 1492, our world was changed forever. But we did not disappear. Today, the languages and teachings of our ancestors remain. And these are the untold stories of the Americas before Columbus. When did the first people arrive in the Americas? Indigenous creation stories tell how our ancestors emerged as humans from the earth, the water, the sky, and the land below. Some people believe that we walked into the Americas on foot across an ancient land bridge that once connected Asia and North America. Others say we paddled here in ocean-going canoes along the Pacific coastline. There's one thing that all of these views of arrival have in common. They all begin with a journey. By 1491, Tens of millions of indigenous people were living in every part of the Americas, from the high Arctic to the southern tip of South America. There were countless indigenous nations, each with their own distinct language and ways of life. But this didn't happen overnight. It took thousands of years to build this diverse world from a very small founding population. Since 1492, we've shared our traditional territory with people from every part of the world. Today, we continue our search for the origins of our ancestors and the roots of our cultural identity as indigenous people. We have two
5: different kinds of dates. We have the Archaeological date that says probably somewhere between 18 to 20,000 years ago, the first non-native-born human came into this hemisphere. In terms of indigenous perspectives, we've always been here.
4: Philosophically, we've never been anywhere else. Every indigenous nation has its own creation story. These stories have been passed down from generation to generation for thousands of years. Creation stories form a powerful part of each nation's identity and our sense of who we are as a people. In the beginning, there was a great flood. A few animals and birds survived by clinging to a log. Among them was the tiny muskrat. The creatures decided they needed to find land, but the world was covered in water. One by one, they took turns diving deep into the water, looking for some dirt to bring back to the surface. But each animal came back empty-handed. Finally, the tiny muskrat dove under the water. When he came back, he had a paw full of earth. He placed it on the back of a turtle shell. This is how North America became known as Turtle Island. In the beginning, there was only the sea and sky. The gods created the earth and populated it with animals and birds. But the animals couldn't worship them, so they decided to make humans. The first humans were made from mud, but they fell apart too easily. Then the gods made humans from wood, but they had nothing in their minds, so they destroyed them in a flood. Finally, the gods made humans out of maize dough. They had intelligence and knowledge and could worship the gods, so they became the first people.
6: History hit is like Netflix, just for history films, with exclusive history documentaries covering some of the most famous people and events in history, just for you. With familiar faces such as Dan Jones and Dr. Eleanor Yenega, we've got hundreds of documentaries covering the greatest figures and events of medieval history. We're committed to bringing history fans award-winning documentaries and podcasts that you cannot find anywhere else. Sign up now for a free trial, and Chronicle fans get 50% off their first three months. Just be sure to use the code CHRONICLE. That's chicken.
4: In the beginning, people lived in the sky, and the only creatures they knew were birds. A young hunter set out one day to find a rare and beautiful bird. When he finally found it, he shot his arrow, and when he went to retrieve it, he discovered a hole in the bottom of the sky. Looking through it, he saw forests and rivers and wild animals. He asked the other hunters to travel to this world with him, but they refused. So he made a rope and lowered it down the hole and climbed down to the world below. He shot a deer and brought it back to the sky world. The others wanted to hunt deer too, so they climbed down the rope. The last person to go through the hole in the sky was a woman, and she became stuck, preventing the people from returning to their home. She can still be seen in the sky as the morning star Historians have long supported a theory that our ancestors walked into the Americas across an ancient land bridge that connected Asia and North America during the last ice age. Until about 13,000 years ago, great sheets of ice kilometers thick covered much of the northern sections of North America, Europe, and Asia. But there were some ice-free regions in the northern hemisphere where people lived. One of these regions was known as Beringia. This thousand kilometer expanse of land connecting the two continents emerged when glaciers locked up vast
7: quantities of water, causing sea levels to fall more than 100 meters. You would see evidence that people came across a land bridge. You see evidence that a land bridge did exist in the past. In the northern parts of North America,
3: Alaska, the Yukon, even northern British Columbia, we have a collection of...
6: Tropical fruit completely erases any sign of vertigo, dizziness, confusion, or brain...
3: Alaska, the Yukon, even northern British Columbia, we have a collection of some of the most ancient sites across the continent. And of course, that would be up in an area that archeologists
7: refer to as Beringia. And you know those people who made it across the land bridge, all they had were their wits and a few stone tools, and yet they managed to explore, uh, discover, and colonize two continents. So that's a pretty amazing achievement in the annals of uh, human history. And they did this by being very aware of their environment, of being able to manipulate their environment to their own benefit. The water between the two continents dropped so low,
4: it exposed the bottom of the sea. This arid, prairie-like landscape remained ice-free, and the abundant birds and mammals provided people with food and materials for clothing and shelter. But Beringia was a temporary landscape. Around 20,000 years ago, the world's climate began to warm, and the glaciers started melting. By 15,000 years ago, the rising sea levels had covered up the Beringia land bridge, and people living there either had to return to Siberia or stay in North America. The melting glaciers and rising sea levels created major environmental changes in the northern hemisphere. The land between the two North American ice sheets widened about 12,000 years ago, offering an ice-free corridor for people to travel through.
3: Historically in archaeology, It was believed that the spread further south into the continent was between the Laurentide and Cordilleran ice sheets. And this is known as the ice-free corridor hypothesis. And so many researchers are saying this was the gateway into the Americas.
4: But taking this route south through such a harsh
7: terrain would have involved a tremendous risk. If they had a people who were up in Alaska and they see this opening between two ice sheets, they're taking a big leap of faith to say, well, maybe we go a thousand miles south of here, we'll find better land. The Ice Recorder would have been a very dynamic landscape. It would have had terrible winters, like harsh cold winters and, and not much better in the summer. The summers would have been cold and rainy. So there wasn't a lot of opportunity for people to find stable land that they could colonize.
4: The end of the last ice age set the stage for the movement of people overland into North America. The indigenous people who traveled into the continent on foot from Beringia could not have known it at the time, but they were not the first people to settle south of the ice sheets. In fact, humans had already been living in both North and South America thousands of years before the glaciers melted and opened up routes south through the ice-free corridor.
8: Glaciers covered much of the northern hemisphere until about 12,000 years ago. As temperatures warmed worldwide, ice melted and sea levels began to rise. These changes to the environment led to animal, bird, and human migration throughout North America, Asia, and Europe.
0: Why do people have to believe that human migration into the Americas only went in a southern direction? Question mark there is ample evidence that immigration occurs in all directions from the south as well Exclamation
8: point. Tens of thousands of years ago, the climates in parts of the Asian subcontinent was much wetter than it is today. In India, the Thar Desert was once a vast, fertile grassland. Hunters following the herds eventually settled permanently in the region. As the glaciers retreated, the warming climate created new agricultural zones in the northern hemisphere. Early agriculturalists cultivated new food resources in the fertile soils of the Middle East, and this led to the formation of farming settlements and eventually cities. During the last ice age, sea levels were 100 metres lower than they were today, and this created a 1,000-kilometre-wide land bridge to appear between Siberia and Alaska. This became one of the migration routes that humans took into the Americas. Changes in climate over the millennia has influenced the migration paths and hunting practices of humans throughout the world.
9: Do your own taxes online with H&R Block and taxis and feels...
0: The Swedes arrived in North America. A long time before... Christopher Columbus. <laughs> Landed in the Caribbean. Landed in the Caribbean.
9: Just as good as all those other seasons. Like football season. Civil returns file free.
6: That is just good taxes right there. Upload last year's TurboTax return to switch to H&R Block.
9: Would too much calcium
10: be making your arthritis pain worse? If you have joint pain or arthritis, you need to...
7: When they first started doing uh, their surveys in the, uh, what would be the ice-free corridor, the observation they made was that the sites were getting younger as they went north, which is counterintuitive. You'd expect that the oldest sites would be in the north and they'd get progressively younger in the south. So it looked like people were moving north instead of south. So this has always been very paradoxical. And the only way you can explain it is that there were people already living south of the ice sheets. And where did those people come from? The recent discovery of an ancient village and campsites in the Americas
4: that are more than 14,000 years old supports a new theory that people first arrived by boat along the Pacific coastline of North and South
3: America.
0: In the 70s, Researchers propose an alternative hypothesis, according to uh people that I trust very much for their perspective, like Graham Hancock. Because you know, he's good because the mainstream media always like shit all over him, but um, he said that it, you know, and other he's not the only one, but he's the most comprehensive and methodical you know he used to be an economist a writer for the Economist, and to be a writer for the Economist, you have to be a real hot shot you know you have to be real good and uh yeah so i trust him
2: to More say a the
0: coastal archaeo- so-called archaeologists they're just like uh you know they can't say anything um or else they'll lose their job though funding their position
3: The route was also viable. And this sparked a huge debate in archaeology that it had to be one or the other. Which one was it? We're now coming to an understanding that it was likely both happened. However, archaeologists are more leaning towards the coastal
4: route as the earlier alternative. Any journey along
7: the Pacific coast during the ice age would have been treacherous. Keep in mind that the west coast at that time uh, would have been choked with uh, icebergs and lots of ice flows. So for people to uh, travel that way, they would uh, certainly require some good ocean going skills. And that's not out of the question because we do know uh, from the archeological record in East Asia that as early as 40,000 years ago, uh, people were able to make open ocean voyages. When people go on journeys like this, their destination is usually unknown to them. We may never know what compelled
4: indigenous people (laughs) to embark on this treacherous journey by sea. (coughs) What is the history of humanity in North America? We
5: have indications that humans were here, they were producing culture, they were burying their dead, they were becoming a part of the landscape. They were taking
4: taking ownership of the landscape in their own way. Once arriving on land, these seafarers would have found themselves in a strange
7: and foreign world filled with unknown peril and promise. When people are, are traveling into unknown countries, they really have to rely on the skills that they bring with them. So if they know how to live off the land, if they know what seafoods they can consume, this will give them a better than average chance of surviving any new country or new terrain that they're uh, starting to settle in. The idea of where we come from
5: is extremely important. It gives us that sense of place. It tells us the locations that we are tied to both as a people, as individuals it's the part of the landscape that continues to reside in in our bones in our blood but particularly in our minds
4: it's not known how many indigenous people arrived in the americas by water but evidence suggests this was not an isolated occurrence
5: archaeology keeps finding more and more localities which add pieces to the puzzle. When we look at them all in a very broad picture, it does give us that story that deeply complex story about the first people to come into North America.
11: A lot of y'all have been asking me how to get your $540 a month health benefit card shipped directly to your mailbox, and I, uh, I just want to make this little tutorial for y'all.
0: So oh, welcome back. Thank you for 30 billion subscribers. <laughs> and we're listening to The Complete History of Indigenous America Before Colonialism, 1491. It's like, uh, what is this, like three and a half hours long? And we're about halfway through. This is vegetables and
4: fruit anywhere else on Earth.
0: Medieval but history no documentaries
4: has had a greater influence on the history of our ancestors than maize. For thousands of years, maize has permeated
0: every aspect difference between maize of Maya and corn? culture.
4: From the practical, it's a good question,
0: Justa. Uh, what's the difference between maize and corn?
10: Maize. According to Gardening
12: Channel,
2: corn and maize are both terms that reference the same cereal grain. Corn is primarily used in British the North English. American English vernacular, whereas maize is used in the British English vernacular. Oh, okay.
0: British English. Um, Is maize and corn the same? So, Spanish maize, that's a Taino. Taino? That's a Taino name. Not going on in American and Australian English is a cereal grain first domesticated by indigenous peoples in southern Mexico about 10,000 years ago. It's pretty new. Yeah. Are you sure? Sure about that, people?
4: Not only is maize the foundation of their creation stories, it is the heart and soul of the Maya civilization. Got a list. In Maya oral and written history, the gods created the first humans from cornmeal after attempts to make people out of mud and wood fail. Pirates the maize god was referred to as the first father and the maize goddess is associated with fertility the moon and new corn maize appears in the most sacred of Maya ceremonies and in the simplest acts of everyday life maize has nourished and inspired the Maya people Close
13: to 4,000 years. It really is a very integral part of people's lives, their everyday life, um, from, you know, again, providing them with nutrition, but also spiritually is really important. I mean, this is what has shaped people's lives and the history of people, culture. Not only does it include, you know, our beliefs about creation, for example, it has allow people to survive to this day.
4: The Maya people didn't actually develop the maize plant. That honor goes to the indigenous farmers in the Balsas Valley in Mexico, who initiated one of the world's earliest forms of agriculture by cultivating a wild grass known as Teosinte, which became the maize we know today. After each growing season, farmers selected the plants with the most desirable attributes and planted their kernels.
7: In looking at
10: the evolution of maize, we have a, a
4: mendoza Mendo that... that extends back some eight thousand years. Maize could well be the first act <laughs> of genetic engineering in human history.
2: <laughs> Between
4: six and seven thousand years ago, maize had traveled
12: to the Andean and Amazonian regions of South America.
0: All right. Where will we? Nah. I don't like meeting people.
4: I don't like talking to people. Thousand years ago, maize had traveled to the Andean and Amazonian regions of South America.
7: We begin to find maize
10: moving over these ancient routes early on, so we know that foodstuffs were critical. Maize was also easy to
13: transport and store, which the Maya used to their advantage. Considering the importance of corn for people's uh, diet, I'm sure it uh, was a valuable commodity, valuable food to trade. How do
10: you get those products when you yourself don't grow maize? You trade beads, you trade shell, you trade obsidian, and you get the product. As the Mayan population
4: grew, so did the need to generate food on an industrial scale. One method used by the Mayans to mass produce maize was known as slash and
13: burn. So that would mean that, you know, you live in an area, you cut down the forest, you grow corn, and then uh, after a while, that soil might not be able to provide for you anymore, so you move on to another place and you cut it down and, and do the same thing.
4: Other agricultural methods were adopted as well, including stepped terrace farming along hillsides and raised farm beds in marshes.
13: They would take um, weeds or plants growing in the water They would mound them to, as a source of uh, nutrients.
4: Crop diversification was also essential to the health of both the people and the land itself, and maize was grown alongside chili peppers, squash, and beans.
13: Corn is, they requires a lot of nutrients, and so beans is actually a uh, a plant that provides nitrogen into the soil. So, um, So the beans help the corn to grow. You obviously need to have these crops grow together so they provide for each other or help one another to grow better.
4: By using a variety of methods for growing maize, the Maya developed intricate agricultural infrastructures in Mesoamerica as maize spread throughout the Americas. It contributed to the development and growth of the Inca, Aztec,
6: This may sound strange, but if you're struggling to lose weight, stop dieting immediately. Researchers from the Stanford University School of Medicine discovered something unique. They found that the biological
4: Aztec, ancestral Pueblo, and many other indigenous civilizations Наталья, чампаль! As Mesoamerican civilizations rose and fell over the millennia, there is one thing that remained constant, the central role that maize held in the diet, traditions, and mythology of the people. Today, maize is one of the world's most widely grown crops. Its development remains one of the most impressive acts of agricultural achievement.
8: 10,000 years ago, people in three different regions in the world were domesticating wild vegetables and grains. Rice in China, wheat in the Middle East, and maize in central Mexico were three founding crops. Rice was first cultivated in China and grown on terraced hillsides classical Chinese languages, the word for agriculture is the same as the word for rice. Wheat was first cultivated in Mesopotamia and is thought to be the first grain to be domesticated by humans. 5,000 years ago, the Egyptians made the first bread of South America and much of North America. Maize can be ground into a flour, the cobs burned as a fuel, and the husks woven into mats and baskets.
4: The potato is to the Andean region of South America, what maize is to Mesoamerica. essential
12: to the cultural identity of the people. Left in the ground for a year or more.
4: The potato was first cultivated between 8 and 10,000 years ago near Lake Titicaca which straddles the borders of Peru and Bolivia Over time, indigenous farmers created more than 5000 varieties of potato, each with its own unique flavor and color.
0: From the Andean point of view, color is also in, uh, important for this for these people because each each kind of potato have a social role. The planting of everything in the Andes have a, a powerful uh, ritual. is very entangled with the many things that they are doing all the time. The communities, the real communities in the Andean highlands, they don't get the distinction between the ritual, political, or economic things. For these people, is almost the same. The planting of
4: the potato each season was accompanied by prayers performed by priests. Farmers carried out a planting ritual that involved the men breaking the ground and the women planting the potato. The potato is especially adaptable to the climates of the Andes. As it grows well in the cooler, higher mountain ecosystem, Using the agricultural process of terrace farming, the Andean people sculpted the sides of mountains to create flat sections of land to grow potatoes and other crops. Like maize, potatoes were hardy and easy to transport. But unlike maize, which traveled from Mesoamerica to South America soon after its development, the potato did not arrive in Mexico until about 500 years ago. From there, it was traded with other indigenous communities and eventually made its way to the northwest coast of North America and as far north
9: as Alaska. Cultures in uh, Mexico um, along, the, uh, along the western coast of Mexico all had potatoes in some way or another. It's only when you get into um, the United States region that potatoes start to um, completely disappear. And yet they reappear up in Washington and in Oregon, simply called Stinget Kuntze or Clinket potatoes. They're, they're our old potatoes. They're the ones that everybody used to have before we got these big ones. A potato research lab in Wisconsin sequenced the genes of the Cassan uh, potato and the Clinket uh, Maria's potato and they found that the nearest relatives of them were the Ozette potato that was um, known from the Macaw. Area and Ozette um, on the uh, outer coast of Olympic Peninsula in Washington. Then the next nearest relatives are in Mexico. It remains
4: a mystery as to how long potatoes have been grown along the northwest coast of North America.
9: The earliest explorers said explicitly that they saw people with gardens um, in the northern northwest coast. It could have been the very earliest Spanish ships that introduced this, but it's hard to see because the Spanish didn't spend very much time up in Tlingit country. They came, they named things, they stopped, said hello in Yakutat, and then left. I'm of the opinion that these are probably pre-European. If
4: potatoes that originated in Mexico reached the west coast of North America before the arrival of European seafarers, how did they make the journey to Alaska?
9: If we know that a a couple of young Clinkett men could paddle all the way down from Wrangell in southeast Alaska to Fort Vancouver on the Columbia River, there's no reason that people wouldn't have traveled as far south as California to pick up potatoes and bring them north. And what's more extraordinary is that in the intervening centuries, we've maintained the exact same potato line, and I have it growing back at home. Maize and potatoes
4: were integral to the ancient economies of the Americas, and are still vital components of the world's food supply today.
8: Drying and storing plants and vegetables offered ancient peoples a year-round food supply and valuable trade products. Coffee is one of the world's most popular beverages, but its ancient history remains a mystery. It originally grew wild in Ethiopia, and about 500 years ago, coffee beans were being exported to Northern Africa and Europe. Traces its origins to medicinal use by the emperors of China. It eventually became a popular beverage throughout Asia and the world. potatoes were first cultivated in raised gardens in the high altitudes in Peru and Bolivia. Inca farmers developed a dried potato product called Chimu that could be stored for more than a year. Tea, coffee, and potatoes were an important part of ancient diets and economies, and they still are today.
4: The population in Amazonia before 1491 numbered in the millions. People lived in small coastal villages, as well as large cities along the tributaries
6: of the Amazon River. The wild plants and small game that were things you start to see within one year of total vision loss. A Nobel Prize winning doctor has just revealed the true solution to failing vision, and it has absolutely nothing to do with wearing glasses, surgery, or laser treatments. Instead, it goes much deeper into a little-known adult repair stem cells that are absolutely crucial to your crystal clear vision. Most people rely on glasses or contacts to correct their vision, because they've been led to believe vision loss is progressive, even though new studies are showing this to be entirely false. So if you or someone you care about is struggling with blurry vision, floaters, dark spots or worse, then you must keep watching to find out the truth. These stem cells work on a cellular level rejuvenating not only your eyes, but also your entire body including heart, liver, skin, colon, and more. His intense research shows that your eyes could get worse with each month of wearing glasses or contacts, because as you know, they don't do a thing to rebuild your eyes from within. And this is exactly what the vision industry depends on. Years of testing led this doctor to a bizarre way to activate these adult repair stem cells in your body, so they could restore crystal clear vision while you sleep. A clinically proven bedtime method that you can start as soon as today, no matter if you've been struggling to see clearly for two months, two years or two decades. This remarkable solution takes only eight seconds to do from the comfort of home and gets to work to reset your vision in no time. All without the need for drops, risky surgery, expensive laser treatments or endless doctor visits. And it works for all types of vision problems, including cataracts, glaucoma, macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy, you name it. So take a break from what you've been doing and tap the blue button on your screen to watch a quick, free eye-opening video. You'll see how more than 110,000 people are already doing it, and not only have they been able to restore yeah, sharper vision, uh, most have thrown their glove. Since small game that were harvested
4: from the rainforest could not sustain this growing population. Indigenous people needed to find a way to produce high yield plants.
14: Plant domestication is as old here as it is in places like China or Mesopotamia. But these guys, these people here in the New World, they were like domestic. They domesticated with squash very early, chili peppers, and then maize, corn. And we know there are many Amazonian plants, like cacao, for instance, that was domesticated
4: in the Amazon for thousands of years. People living in the Amazon River Basin have practiced a form of agriculture that led to the development of dozens of varieties of vegetables and fruits. Unlike potatoes and maize, this type of plant cultivation didn't involve the intensive clearing of traditional style farming. Instead, they practiced agroforestry, which is the mixing of wild and cultivated fruits, vegetables, and nuts in a forested environment. These people, they're eating a lot of corn, for
14: instance, but they're also eating palms and Brazil nuts, technically they're wild plants. They're not domesticated. But I mean, they didn't become farmers. They were generally hunter-gatherers
4: that had domesticated plants in their backyards for thousands of years. Unlike the farming practices in Mesoamerica and the Andes, agroforestry required less intensive labor to prepare the land and harvest the crops. So traditionally, how would an archeology look at this? That archeology would say, well, these people, they
14: were incipient farmers, Traditionally, how scientists would look at that, oh, these guys are backwards, they're not farmers, they haven't achieved. Like, they have not climbed to another step or another layer in cultural evolution. That's a false premise. If you look at the evidence today, we see that, you know, these were stable
4: lifestyles. Agroforestry was as innovative and productive as farming methods used elsewhere. Demanded different approaches to agriculture.
14: Normally places where farming become more important in the
4: beginning, there were places
14: where there was scarcity of resources. Places like Caral, for instance, it's a small river, valley, surrounded by deserts, very dry deserts, and the mountains. Whereas if you look at places where resources were abundant, like the Amazon or the Northwest coast, there was no pressure for these people to become farmers. And the idea that farming necessarily is a, is a change for the better, is a modern idea that's been applied from Western Europe but in areas which are covered by tropical rainforests, I think we're dealing with different strategies.
0: She wants to talk the to, Amazonia really to
12: ma- The Amazonian really
14: help us to rethink.
12: In the waters, in the rivers.
0: Call William. She wants, she wants to talk to, to, talk to William. Call William. She wants to talk she to will William.
12: and quinoa, cultivated in South America
4: thousands of years ago, are now widely distributed throughout the world. You can look
14: at the forest as a library, there's so much information there, and to be able to classify, understand, and actually find a way to use all those resources, it's a very
4: sophisticated knowledge. A constant source of abundance, the Amazon remains one of the most biologically diverse places.
8: to be cultivated by humans were apples in Asia, olives in the Middle East, and olives in South America. The wild ancestors of olives grew throughout Mesopotamia. They later spread to the Mediterranean region and northern Africa, where they were domesticated and grown for cooking in lamp oil, fruit, and wood. The domestication of wild apples first took place in the mountains of Kazakhstan. Farmers planted apple trees in orchards, and over time cultivated new varieties of the fruit. <coughs> they
0: did a good job. Kazakhstan, isn't that interesting?
8: palm trees are a wild plant that developed into an
6: important vegetable you must never eat if you want to eliminate type 2 diabetes for good if you or a loved one are fighting type 2 diabetes on, pre-diabetes or high blood sugar Everybody you must does. see this
8: that developed into an important cultivated tree in amazonia the tree eventually spreads throughout south america oh human intervention. Huh. Peach palm gets some of those. Today, palm, apples, peach. olives, and peach palms are an important source of food throughout the world. Huh.
4: Thousands of kilometers north of the Amazon is another major rainforest, the Pacific Northwest. Like the Amazon, the vegetation and waterways provide such a diversity of flora and fauna That indigenous people had little need to engage in large farming. One of the few exceptions was. The nutritious bulb of this purple flowered plant was a significant part of the Coastal diet. While it grows wild, it became an important food source and trade item through long-term cultivation.
11: The women who had the role and responsibility to manage these food systems, they knew all the different things that needed to be done, the burning that had to take place in the fall, and managing the areas where the camas can be harvested, all the different other plants that needed to be taken care of throughout the year and harvested as well.
4: The process of cultivation used by Coast Salish women to grow camas was a hybrid between farming techniques in Mesoamerica America and the
11: Andes, and agroforestry found in the Amazon. It's not running lines and dropping seeds in a row. It's harvesting the camas when they're in seed and uh, turning the soil, collecting the bulbs you're going to take, putting them back. The ones you're not going to take, you're dropping the seed just before you're putting the final bits of soil back down. They maintain
4: their plots through regular clearing and controlled burns. Camas was cooked for 24 hours or more to break down the bulb's crystalline fibers into a digestible sugar. Once cooked, camas was mixed with berries. Flattened and dried into a fruit leather, it was cooked with other foods or dried and
11: ground and flour. I would say, if anything, it might be close to a parsnip, but have a consistency of a sweet potato. They would be here if the women didn't manage these food systems in a way that sustained their community.
4: In Mesoamerica and the potatoes of the Andes, hamas for its practical, spiritual, and Camas. cultural significance for the Coast Salish peoples.
11: I know Cam- when me and my family Cam- go out, we Cam- harvest camas, and um, we do pit cooks. It's a whole different kind of conversation that takes part. Huh. We're talking in a different way that you normally wouldn't be at a, at your dinner table. We're connecting to the land. We're connecting to the food. And all of these memories come up of our what we've been taught about, our history. We start talking about the history of the area we're harvesting. We're talking about the food. We're talking about the stories that come within our ancestral lands and within the food system as well. And I imagine when I'm there, how it must have been for our ancestors to have that kind of conversation and to uh, connect to the food and remind everyone that we're still a part of this food system.
4: In addition to their agricultural achievements, indigenous people throughout the Americas developed innovative ways to fish and hunt. The Arctic region of North America has been home to a succession of indigenous cultures over the past 5,000 years. They found ways to survive the harsh winter climate. Without the advantage of wood, stone, or clay to build houses. The primary source of food for the Tuli Dorset, Inuit, and
10: other northern people was the seal. Inuit, all across the north, survived mainly because of one animal, and that animal is the seal. We would travel mostly out on the sea ice. Uh, hunting seals all winter because that's what we lived on, all seals. The traditional way was to use a harpoon. Just, you know, the seals are very wary and, but apparently they don't see very well, you know, when they're out of the water and they have to come up, you know, because, you know, they have to breathe and they come up and they have these holes. They sun themselves really close to their holes um, so they can just dive down when, you know, when we or polar bears come. A successful seal hunt depended on patience, skill, and cunning. In the spring, when all the uh, snow was gone from, you know, the, the ice, uh, we would have to crawl basically on, on the sea ice pretending to be a seal, you know, uh, until we got close enough to go and harpoon it. We had all these implements that we used to detect when they were coming up to see when the water was going up, you know, uh, up and down when the seal swam under or came up, you know, and took a good breath. We used dogs to sniff them out, and then we would use a harpoon to catch the seal. We studied animals. That we heard, so that we can them. But we're also very grateful to them for supplying us with, you know, what we need. In the region where people lived off the land for months at a time, they used every part of the animal. Every part of the food was used. We ate the meat, of course, and then we used things, you know, mostly for what we call cunnings which are sealskin beef, and they're warm, they're waterproof, and um, and they're very comfortable to wear. We use the fat to, to burn in our half-moon-shaped uh, uh, lamps, you know, to, to cook with and to heat our eagles with. And the fat uh, from the seal was pounded to, you know, release all the oil, and that's what we burned. We eat. We did eat whale, we eat caribou. We not only hunt them, we also thank them for supplying us with all this food and, and our survival. Weighing more than 30
4: pounds. And measuring 15 meters, the largest animal in the sea would be a formidable challenge
12: for any fisherman.
15: In our oral traditions we say we were whalers from the day we were created with the archaeological evidence in both Nunchanoth and Macaw territory, demonstrate a connection to whaling for over 5,000 years. That's from the whale bones they've collected, from the whale in the middens showing that it was a major food product. The whale bones were used as part of the equipment and tools that were utilized. The
4: whaling culture permeated every part of these nation's lifestyles, from trade to
15: ceremony to art you grow up knowing that you come from whaling from Tekin, from the thunderbird who gave each tooth the whale to us with the eclipse with the, with the sea serpent and you see it everywhere i mean it's in our songs it's in our dances it's in our artwork that's how we keep that whaling culture alive in the springtime when our foods were being depleted that's when we would hunt the whales in the early spring when they were going up through their migration pattern up to alaska whales contributed to over 70 percent of the food in our diet especially in our early spring because whale meat oil and fat had major nutritional benefits
4: Within the Nuchanos and Makan nations was a distinct hierarchy that dictated the role of each person in the whale hunt.
15: The chiefs were the people who whaled, so the chiefs were the ones who basically had the rights to the whale products, to the whale meat, oil and fat. The oil itself was a very highly prized trade item. It was traded up and down the coast and to some interior communities as well. The Taiyi Hawith, which is the highest chief, would ultimately oversee the distribution. He and his family would keep the choice pieces of the the whale. And the Chakwasi, which is the dorsal fin, which is where the spirit of the whale lives. They would have prayers conducted for four days after that to show the respect of that spirit. And when that spirit left, the Chakwasi, the dorsal fin, would stay with that chief. The rest of the whale would be distributed according to status in that community, so to the next chief in line and the next chief, or it would be distributed in this larger potlatch to invited guests from other communities. But
4: for the Nutanov and Macaw peoples,
15: the whale hunt represented far more than a source of food. A lot of people don't understand this when they look. at
8: A new stimulus program for Americans born after 1957 was just announced. Eligible Americans will receive cash compensation, $0 dental, medical, vision, and more. When approved, you'll receive an HSA cash card. You can use it for utilities, rent, and even gross.
15: A lot of people don't understand this when they look at whaling, especially in the idea of what it meant to kill something, the killing of a whale, because they miss and they misconstrue that Spiritual, emotional, psychological connection that we have to whales. We wouldn't put whales on our walls if we didn't revere Hmm. them, if we didn't respect them, if they weren't central to who we were, if it was just a matter of killing something for food. It went beyond that. And how you understand that is looking at the prayers, the certain rituals that were conducted not just by the whale or by the entire whale crew, but especially. many people say and it's passed down to oral record as well as anthropological research conducted on whaling the whaler's wife the hakum which is a woman of high status in our, in our um, language she had a special and intimate connection to the whale the whale that was being sought and it was believed that if that whale came to the boat and gave itself which is ultimately what we believe that we're not killing the whale it's provide that spirit of the whale is giving itself to those whalers to that whaling chief it's giving itself to her so she has some of the the most important rituals to observe and especially when the whaling crew leaves she cannot move because it believes that her spirit is connecting to the whaling spirit so if she moves she could make that that whaling spirit unruly she could cause the whale to leave. She could cause the whale to, to, to hurt the, the whaling crew. So she lays very still in her home, in her longhouse, while the crew is out seeking the whale. And even after they catch the whale, the whale will calm if it is connected to her spirit. The whaler's wife, even though she is not out on the water, she is ultimately the most important and central figure in that whale hunt because that whale is connecting to her.
4: One of the largest land mammals to be hunted by our ancestors was the buffalo, also known as the American bison. In the central region of North America, the buffalo has been an important source of meat, hide, and fat for indigenous people for more than 10,000 years.
7: Right from the end of the ice age, people were already hunting bison, but they were extinct, uh, they were hunting the extinct forms of bison.
4: At three meters tall and a thousand kilograms each, these extinct bison would have towered over a hunter.
7: Very early on, we see that people are already focusing a lot of uh, their energies on this one species.
4: Thousands of years before the introduction of the modern horse to the Americas, the buffalo would have been an imposing target for even the hardiest of
7: hunters on foot. Right after the ice age, uh, the way that communal hunting Work was you'd have a small group of hunters, for example, maybe six six or seven hunters, and they'd ambush a small herd of bison, perhaps a dozen. They did herd in small herds, but the large massive herds that we hear about in the historic period became more gregarious as they grew smaller in size. About 2,000 years ago,
4: bison hunting on the plains went through a dramatic transformation. Instead of small hunting parties going after a few bison, there were suddenly hundreds of people working together to chase herds of bison over cliffs or into natural or man-made traps. This form of hunting required large numbers of people to hunt, process the meat and hides,
7: and transport it all back to the settlements. They would get as much as they could, and as fast as they can. And then, of course, uh, the carcasses will start to uh, be less good for human consumption. But they're still good for uh, animals such as uh, plains grizzlies or uh, wolves or coyotes. Uh, even things such as turkey vultures and California condors would have a uh, big uh, feast at the buffalo jump. after the people have uh, taken their share and gone away. Rather than being a waste of uh, buffalo, it, it's a part of the food chain on the prairie. Basant Valley in South Central Saskatchewan was where the first site was uh, discovered. And it looked like they lured a herd of bison into a corral and then uh, butchered them in there.
4: But the buffalo jump wasn't the only significant discovery made at the Basant Valley site.
7: They also had...
15: Hi friends, Daniel here with Solar Patriots, and I'm going to show you exactly how your solar go-fridge works. Don't worry, even though this is some super advanced...
7: ...have created a structure that's an architectural form, very similar to what you would later on as Sundance launch. So this idea of uh, Sundance and the, uh, the invention of the Bumblebee Jump come together at the same time almost. In fact, in, in earlier archaeologists uh, on the plains noted this connection and speculated that people congregated for the ritual, and the buffalo jump uh, was a uh, byproduct of that. Other people would say that the buffalo jump brought people together, and the ritual context was a byproduct of that. There is another theory about the
4: sudden increase in large-scale buffalo hunting. Several large cities on the Mississippi River, talk about Cahopia, how the
0: white were colonizer important centers was
4: of continental shooting
0: trade. The buffalo from people the train thousands
4: of kilometers for from every part of North America to trade goods
0: decimated cities. the population.
7: The colonized for buffalo that. meat had expanded, and so it was an economic uh, no solution uh, was to no import thing. more yeah. buffalo meat from the plains, which meant that the people on the plains could harvest a whole herd of bison, take as much as they can for their own consumption, but also enough for a surplus that they could trade. And so this led to a cycle of uh, dependence between those two communities.
8: Fish and seafood have always been a part of the human diet people in different parts of the world invented tools and fishing techniques to improve the success of the harvest. The Egyptians invented a variety of copper and bronze fishing hooks that they used to harvest fish in the Nile River and its tributaries. Other deer antlers, and used to capture fish and seals in rivers and seas. One of the oldest fishing weirs in the world. Was discovered under 120 meters of water near Haida Gwaii. The stone weir confirms that people lived (coughs) along the coastline of North America before the end of the last ice age. Fishing tools developed thousands of years ago are still in use in many parts of the world today.
4: Rivers, lakes, and oceans have always been an important source of food for indigenous peoples throughout the Americas. The discovery of an underwater stone fishing ware in Haida Gwaii and a village site near Bella Bella dating back more than 14,000 years, reinforces claims that our ancestors lived along the Pacific West Coast long before there was an interior route into the Americas after the ice age ended. Since that time, the waterways have provided protein in the form of fish, shellfish, and a variety of sea mammals. The Fraser River in Canada is the largest single salmon run in the world, with millions of fish making their way from the Pacific Ocean up the Fraser's many tributaries to spawn each year there was an understanding that the migrating fish would be shared by the many nations living along the ocean and interior rivers and lakes. The Samus people
16: were often called the saltwater people because much of our traditional territory was marine environment. Salmon are still one of the most important foods. The salmon that we did catch because we caught them in the marine environment were, were much better quality than one they reached the river our salmon was prized and we would often travel to the river to trade with those people for the things that we needed so there was a, a traditional economy there as well
4: salmon is not only an important food and trade item it's also part of the mythology art and culture of the region's many nations indigenous peoples in the northwest had both personal and community ceremonies to honor the salmon that they harvested for food when the first
16: sockeye was caught, it was the first salmon ceremony. It was the children who, who greeted the salmon at the shore and brought the salmon back to the community. In our thinking, the children were very pure, so the, the most appropriate people to, to bring the salmon back. And they would carry the salmon back to the community, but carrying it like a, like a baby, I've been told. And we've,
4: we've started to bring that ceremony back as well over the last number of years. While the tradition was different for each nation, in each case, the salmon was honored for returning to spawn and feeding the people for another year. Of the many species of salmon found in the waterways off the northwest coast, one has stood out from the rest. The most important salmon in our traditional times
16: and even today was the sockeye salmon. We don't have any sockeye spawning rivers in our territory the sockeye travel through our territory on the way to the Fraser to spawn.
4: So we needed fishing technology that would be capable of catching of salmon in the marine environment. Methods used by indigenous peoples to harvest salmon from the ocean and rivers included nets, traps, weirs, hooks, and harpoons. Some steered fish from platforms they built over the river. Others made conical fish traps three-pronged spears. And dip nets made from willow and alder. One example of that is the, the development of the reef net technology for
16: the straight sailors people. These reef nets were traditionally capable of catching, you know, thousands of fish, and I think the capability was there to catch them all if we wanted to. But the idea of conservation was already um, part of that system. We would actually in traditional times would would weave in a ring of willow in the end of the in the bunt end of the leaf net to allow some of the salmon to escape. Not because it was just an act of conservation, but it was also because of a belief and a worldview that the salmon that were our relatives, and that the salmon traveling together were were family lineages. Salmon had two names, they had a common name and they also had a prayer name. And those prayer names referred to those salmon as, they were were using kinship terms, praying and speaking to the salmon as if they're they're relatives. So if we allow some of the salmon to escape, then those families will continue to to perpetuate themselves into the future and that they would be able to come back to us year after year. While our practices might have looked Um, primitive. That was only because we used everything that was founded in our our natural environments. But I think the key thing behind it was also the worldview and the belief system that upheld all of those traditional technologies. And that's what really made it sustainable.
4: Over thousands of years, the first peoples of the Americas developed techniques to hunt migrating animals and to fish on abundant oceans and waterways. Innovations in agriculture in the Americas through the domestication of wild plants was a turning point for our ancestors. We cleared forests. Paris mountainsides to grow crops. We built towns and cities near farmlands. And like the animals we hunted, the plants we cultivated influenced our traditions and beliefs. But the greatest impact of agricultural and hunting innovation was not realized until 1491, when the indigenous population in the Americas was in the tens of millions. This was a feat that could only have been achieved by a people who had mastered the art and science related to fishing, hunting, and plant cultivation. The architectural styles of our ancestors reflected the diverse natural environments of the Americas the social and cultural needs of each nation. Ice houses in the Arctic, Adobe Apartment.
10: Flight has gone down. This is an emergency. Survive together. Or die alone. We're getting off this island.
8: Captain Torrance, flight commander.
10: How can I help you? Fugitive extradition. Uh, what you Thomas, I'm you I don't want to get out of the rest of the body. I'm to start
15: Captain. Let's get them on board. Let's have a good flight. Cutting
7: <sighs> right through the top of the storm.
4: Adobe apartment buildings in the southwest. And I'm going to find designs that have endured for thousands of years our architectural accomplishments are not limited to houses throughout the americas large cities featured temples central plazas markets and ball courts over the millennia indigenous architecture adapted to changes in the environment innovations in technology and a growing population indigenous people have lived in southwestern North America for more than 12,000 years. Early Pueblo people lived in underground pit houses constructed from wood and mud. With the natural insulation of the earth, these houses were cool in the summer and warm in the winter. Around 2,000 years ago, the ancestral Pueblo began to cultivate maize, beans, and squash.
10: Farming led to a more settled way of life, and eventually to the growth of villages and towns. Here in the Southwest, this uh, tradition, if you will, of communal building uh, was very well developed. So that community sense, that community spirit, certainly was the essential way you survived. It was through the community and through participation in community work.
16: But the night I want to home. you, you, you a no,
7: You walk by a uh, pencil. I don't can i eat my so I a no armor. them cannot be sorry,
0: by no armor.
4: Architecture changed dramatically as the Pueblo people began to construct rectangular, attached family houses above ground. 1200 years ago, multi-storied apartment buildings began appearing across the southwest. These adobe structures were built under rock overhangs and on mesas, and were home to hundreds and even thousands of people. Pueblo cities like those at Mesa Verde in Colorado and Chaco Canyon in New Mexico were
10: among the largest ancient cities in North America.
0: And uh, what about Arizona too?
10: You see the height of the building of the apartment structures, especially, really beginning during the times, I think, of the large cities uh, in Mesa Verde and Canyon. Those are definitely uh, structures that required an understanding of geometry, an understanding of practically you know, skills, figuring things out in terms of, you know, load-bearing walls how you can actually place one structure on top of another structure without it caving in. Those are are technical feats which have some central architects that are guiding the way the, the structure should be built. But the knowledge of how to do that is actually held collectively because everyone participated, you see, in building these structures.
11: The individual is like
7: one strand of a much larger web of relationship. You I'm a I'm a i
11: What do you want? You have to be nice to
10: car. And so that community sense, that community spirit uh, certainly was responsible for uh, what
6: would hey. be today called the hey. Magnificent hey. Of, uh, you want to have a seriously sexy body, yeah. do this five-second ice cream before you go to bed tonight. Come on, guys. Hey, hey,
0: hey. stop it.
6: Of, uh, hey, hey,
10: hey. hey. For about 400 years, these large urban centers yeah,
0: thrived.
4: But change was in store for the people living in
10: cities. We know that there was climate change. You know the fact that affected and impacted the people. Issues like uh, a major drought in 1200 that uh, catalyzed a lot of movement. Of communities out of those large structures. Uh, again, water being the, the central factor here in the Southwest, you know, you have to move to where the water sources are.
4: A 50 year